It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Sir Stephen Wilkinson, founder and CEO of Good and Prosper. Stephen has been involved in business finance and investment for the best part of 30 years, having started working for Merrill Lynch Investment Bank in Munich in Germany in 1987 at the tender age of 24. Good and Prosper is an investment company and a knowledge platform teaching finance to entrepreneurs with a focus that's always been on small and medium-sized businesses, primarily in Germany and Europe, and mostly in some sort of distress or need of restructuring. In 2015, Stephen was invited to join an interfaith delegation to the Caribbean island state of Grenada, whose purpose was to coordinate a number of reconstruction and redevelopment projects for infrastructure seriously damaged by hurricanes a decade earlier. As part of that delegation, representing the Anglican community, he was awarded with an honor bestowed by the Governor General into the Order of the Nation of Grenada with the rank of Knight Commander. Stephen believes that business can and should be a force of good in our society, and that the more people take entrepreneurial responsibility for their lives, the better our society will be. Sir Stephen Wilkinson, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. I'm honored to be on your show. Uh, it's great to have you here. And I, I think you're at your lovely home in Ireland at the moment. Is that correct? I am. Yep. It's All um, right. well, we're... pitch black outside, but um, <laughs> when the sun's shining, which it does sometimes, it's, I have a lovely view. Well, we'll in, in, in New York City, we'll have a couple hours more of sun, and uh, that's pretty much the same thing. So waving to you across the Atlantic, and so wonderful to uh, get a chance to record this with you. We met last summer in Oxford at the uh, wonderful Moonshots uh, conference, and we'll touch on that because I know you're very involved in the Birthing of Giants organization, but we always like to kind of start our podcast at the beginning and hear a little bit about your early family life. So uh, tell us, where were you born and raised and, you know, what were the kind of influences you had in your life? I, I know there's a deeper entertainment background. We'll probably touch on that with your with your grandfather. But uh, what did mom and dad do and in, in what part of the world did you grow up in? Um, I grew up in a bilingual household in the hmm. north of Lancashire on the west coast of England. So northwest, hmm. opposite Dublin, more or less, um, if you cross the Irish Sea. Um, and my, I, came, I come from a, a business family, um, but bilingual because my father married a German um, girl, oh, okay. um, my mother, yeah. in the beginning of the 1960s, um, which was interesting and influential for me for 
two reasons. Firstly, my mother was um, not from a business family. She came from a fairly ordinary mm. family in rural Bavaria. Um, and so sort of being thrust into a business family was probably quite frightening for her. Um, firstly, and secondly, she, her English wasn't very good. So I grew up as the eldest of three children with at the point where my mother was was probably at her least confident in the English language and therefore spent an inordinate amount of time with us and talked German to me. So I, I learned to understand German and probably talk German at a very early age. Um, right which not quite as much for my brothers and sisters, I don't think, because my mother's English, of course, you know, after a couple of years of being there, got much better. And I think in the 19, early 1960s, life for a German in the mm -hmm. north of England, yeah. which was sort of culturally <laughs> at least a decade behind the south and London, was probably quite a difficult thing to be. Yeah. So I think she kept yeah, actually, yeah. very much to herself and was and that meant that we we had a very intense family life at home my mother's a great homemaker mm -hmm. um and we had a and a delightful childhood um my grandfather was a tech entrepreneur and right, his tech right. was radio and television um yeah. in the 1940s fusion, and 50s. as i understand right telefusion was the name of the business Telefusion, um, right right and um he was one of the pioneers and i think the pioneer of the the higher purchase model for right um for for that technology in those days um so in conversations that my my father was a, was a brilliant mathematician um left university with a law degree in business and commerce and went to work for my grandfather fairly quickly they went public um very early for a family business so I grew up in a household where business was talked about a lot, um, all the time. Yeah, all the time. So, so I was immersed yeah. in it. Um, but my first love has always been language and literature, um, and uh, you know that that informed my my school career and and has been the 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 backdrop to my inner life. Um, ever since I was a child. So language, Did you grow up in the public schools system, system or private school system? Well, the, 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 the private school system in England is confusingly called the public school system. <laughs> right, um, right. For the simple reason that if you paid, you could go there. So it was open to everybody who could pay. Um, and the, the state school system was one that you had to go to the school that was in your area more or less right. so right. but yes I, I was i was educated privately yeah and was and, sent away um, sent away to school at the age of eight with all the psychological damage that that, that, that does to so, so a sensitive child right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, did you finish your education in the uk as well or did you i did have some education in i did um i finished it in the uk but i had a um a couple of years at university in germany Right, right. Good so, student during those years? Appalling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> it is very true because I didn't actually, um, I didn't really want to go 
because I was enjoying working so much. Right. I got a really interesting job in London. And actually, I wanted to, to stay there and work because I loved earning money um, and having independence. And at that stage, it was um, it, my, <laughs> my, I hadn't really thought very much about a career. Not really. Right. And because was there some pressure the, to go into the family business? Oh, there absolutely that, there was. There was. The, I mean, yeah. it was not just yeah, pressure. You were the it oldest was, son, right? I was yeah. the oldest son. There was a great deal of rivalry between my father's side of the family and his sister about who was going to be the next, you know, managing director of the mm-hmm. company. And it was either me right. or my cousin. And we got up. My cousin and I got on very well, and we promised each other we would never fight over that. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was never really. I didn't really f- ever feel as if I had an option. Um, if you ask my father today, he would say, well, you know, we'd, of course he did, but it didn't feel like that. Um, right. and, and so I, he sort of gave me an ultimatum and said, you know, well, you're not coming into the business without a degree. So I went to university, but it was sort of under protest, um, mm. because I actually wanted to work and get out on my own. And in the last year mm-hmm. of my attendance at university, I, um, my father sold the business. Ah, um, interesting. Huh. Which did something very odd with me. It, it, it felt as if I can remember exactly. I remember exactly where I was when I heard the news, and I, huh. I remember what I what I felt, and it felt as though the entire backdrop, you know, that I was standing on a stage. And that the entire backdrop had suddenly disappeared and I was completely <laughs> exposed behind me. Wow, and I didn't imagine. know really what I was doing on that particular stage. And it led to a great deal of disorientation. Uh, and it was only when it disappeared as an option that the sort of full panoply of... of the landscape change. Of the, well, of, of the optionality of everything suddenly... Um, appeared and I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't know what to do with that much choice. Um, And I think one of the things that I regret most, if I look back on my life, um, is not having a mentor or somebody Mm -hmm. that I could talk to at that stage. Um, Yeah. Well, what did you do? I mean, how how did you kind of then make that next stage or, you know, move on to the next landscape? I did. I created the only certainty that I could think of, and that was I got married. <laughs> okay. I, I did. I got married. I got I got yeah. married because I needed some semblance of order. Right. And I needed something that I recognized because all this optional, I wasn't prepared. Having spent, you know, 12 or 10 years in a school system where right. everything is regulated. Right. And, you, right. You know, and I was very successful at school. You know, I was a good student, and I did a lot of things, and I, and, and I was successful in, in, in the way that you can be successful at school. It, the system worked for me. A lot of friends. I did stuff. I was um, editor of the school magazine and turned it round and made it profitable. And, and so, but it was all within a very well ordered structure. Yeah. And when that mm-hmm. disappeared. Um, I now recognize that I you know I wasn't really prepared for optionality in life. Mm. So mm-hmm. getting married was sort of gave me some structure. And then right. I set up my first business. 
um, and because um, that was evidently genetically programmed. Sure, sure. That's you did, what you, you did. Groom for that yeah. your whole life. Yeah. And um, what was that first business? I, well, you know, I. <laughs> I don't really, I don't even know what I was supposed to be doing. I was what twenty one <laughs> at the time. Um, right. it, it, I suppose you would call it a consultancy, but what I was doing was mimicking my first boss, who was a precocious genius at the age of he was in his early thirties, and he had been in the area up in the northeast where I was, and he was running an amazingly successful vibrant consultancy down in London and I was working as his yeah. assistant and that was the business that I didn't want to leave to go to university for because I was learning so much from him and from the, right, that right. environment and there were some very you know, later some there were some very exciting people who were coming through that as you know, juniors and as as consultants who went on to do great things afterwards and it was a fabulous environment and I didn't want to miss it so what I did was sort of recreate it because it was the only role model that I had. Um, And I set myself the task of meeting the 100 most important people in the Northeast, which is Newcastle and the area. And I didn't actually have a business concept or a business model, but I knew that I was good at meeting people and connecting with people. So I did that. And within six months, everybody who was anybody there knew who I was. You know, I just was precocious and I was a really good networker. The only thing is I didn't know what to do with it. So I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I proved something to myself that I could meet. You know, I only had two names to start with, two names. And I reckoned that I could, by sheer dint of asking, who else do I need to talk to if I want to talk to the right. most important people here? Within six months, you know, the rice board, uh, the, 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 the chessboard, the rice corn on the chessboard compounding effect had meant that I had personal introductions to the, you know, the hundred people who those, the, the, the other 50 thought were worth talking to, starting right, with two, right. two names. And, and I learned a lot from that exercise. Um, and when I got married, which I was in the middle, I was sort of got married in that phase, my, my then wife said, "This is not really producing very much income, is it?" Say, so, um, what is what, your job again? What's your job? You know, how how do you plan on feeding us? And that's when I decided <laughs> that it was probably be a good idea to get a job and learn something of value. And I had two options. One of them was one of them was from a company that you may have heard of called Hanson Trust because they were they were the first. They were an early version of a private equity company, but they were publicly traded. Right. Mm-hmm. And the um, they were very strong, one of the few British companies to be successful in the US and in the UK. And um, one of the partners was a chap called Lord Hanson or Sir James Hanson as he was, mm-hmm. I think at that stage. And his other partner was Sir Gordon White or Lord White as he became. And Lord White... Mm-hmm went over and became very famous in um, in the US, lived in Los Angeles, was a great wheeler dealer doing deals for Hanson Trust. And he became sort of immortalized in the first Wall Street film as oh, wow. I think Terence Stamp played his character. 
and he was sort of a suntanned white shirt um, <laughs> Los Angeles sort of businessman playboy who has a role in that first Wall Street film. Anyway, right. that right. business had a battery factory up in north um, in the, in the northeast, and I was I applied for a position because I wanted I thought it was quite a sexy business, and I and I knew Lord Hanson through my father and my grandfather with whom he had had business dealings and I'd always been fascinated by him um, and so I thought that's a sexy thing to do so I applied for a job there and I was offered a job as a trainee manager in a battery factory in the northeast of England which belonged uh-huh. to their portfolio with the idea of sort of learning the ropes and working my yeah. way up through the organization and hopefully ending up at some stage in the hallowed halls of um, of Mayfair <laughs> and London where the, yeah. where, you yeah. know, where James Hansen worked and the other job that I was offered was a as a trainee investment banker for Merrill Lynch, who uh-huh. in those days, it was 1987, um, it was a year after Big Bang, the America, which yeah. is, which was the, the um, freeing up of the city of London, that in the, in the finance industry, the Americans were had sort of invaded in force in the second right. half of 1986, buying up all the large UK brokers, stock jobbers, um, investment houses, most of them anyway, merchant banks, um, and were expanding rapidly on the back of a strong dollar into Europe. And so if you could tie a tie and had a pair of hands, you know, a left <laughs> one and a right one, um, you were pretty much... and you know, were reasonably Seriously, presentable. Yeah. You you were pretty much sure yeah. of a job, and so I nice. I got a job. I took the job in Munich, which is where my first wife was from, um, because she was homesick and hated it in the northeast, and and that seemed to me the better prospect of battery factory manager in, in the northeast, yeah, um, or a fun <laughs> job in finance in um, in Munich, and and that sort of sealed it for me and my my yeah. parents were and my family were horrified you know they thought <laughs> there was nobody less qualified from this character to be <laughs> in finance than me because you know I was a poet and and a writer and and I liked right. you know other things and had never shown any interest in financial matters whatsoever and I would have had to agree with them but the mere fact that they thought that I couldn't was a pretty good <laughs> Spur for <laughs> that was a good motivator for me to do it. And um, so, was so your I, German was your German fluent enough to go and work there, or, or did it become fluent? I guess once you, you know, it was fluent you... enough. And remember, it was yeah. Merrill Lynch, and and yeah. it was you know they just assumed that everybody spoke English anyway, um, right? Right. And and my German was good enough. It was good enough. Um, it was, you know, I, I would probably have told you then I was fluent and I probably was more fluent than most and certainly fluent enough. Um, and I went for what I thought would be two years and ended up staying 28. Um, yeah. And once I left, I think my, uh, the, the, the quite funny little incident that um, I told you, my my parents were convinced that there was no industry to which I was less suited than financial industry. <laughs> financial um, management. And I um, I joined Merrill Lynch International Bank as a baby broker and investment banker 
in late summer of 1987. So we're talking sort of June, maybe 1st of September, something like that, my first day at work. Um, mm. And of course, on the 19th of October, six weeks into my tenure, markets <laughs> crashed. The big crash, yeah. The big 25, 30% down, as I recall. 28% yeah. on, on that, on that yeah. Friday. Um, yeah. Yeah. And on Monday, I got a, a letter from my father, which just had a, f a clipping from that day's Wall Street Journal of the Saturdays. <laughs> um, and he'd just written caustically in a pencil on the graph showing this massive collapse. Now look what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> which, which sort of, I think, encapsulated his confidence in my, in my suitability for the, for the job. But, um, but you stayed anyway, in the industry. I did. Yeah, well, I had to stay for two years at Merrill to um, right. to pay back my the cost of tuition. Um, right. Right. You 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 had to you know without you had to make as much commission as you could without going without blushing um right and right, to pay right. back your you know your forty thousand or whatever it cost to train me views, yeah. and yeah, right i did that reasonably quickly and realized rapidly that it really wasn't my world but i was fascinated by finance i yeah. i was genuinely fascinated by what I was learning, not just the mechanics of it, but the whole sort of meta embedding of finance into economics and economics into society and, and understanding how things flow together. And I started reading avidly um, around the, you know, the, the, the big economists of the past and the, um, and my luck, my luck, as luck would have it, the very first book investing book that I read that came about as a pure coincidence was the intelligent investor. And I think in much the same way that your first boss sets the tone for much of how you think right. about work. So yeah. too, the first in investment, the first influence that you have determines your trajectory. And I was just very fortunate in, in coming across Benjamin Graham through mm. a serendipitous discovery of Berkshire Hathaway and finding the language very accessible and the spirit in which it was written very accessible. And, and mm. Seth Klarman, the great value investor from Baupost, um, wrote in his book, Margin of Safety, Value investing is something you either get immediately, it resonates immediately, or you never understand it. Yeah, right. And with me, it resonated immediately yeah, yeah. because it must have triggered an association with, with business and that yeah. I understood intuitively without really understanding it properly until much later that what I was interested in was business. And that right. the the discovery of of a of an investment philosophy that treated pieces of treated stocks and equities not as pieces of paper to be traded, but as businesses to be understood, 
mm. and partnerships to be entered into, that that struck a deep chord with me, and it's one that has informed my my thinking around what? business and the the world of finance ever since. It sounds like it's a through line to your to your upbringing, right? You know, because business was always discussed around the dinner table and your father and grandfather and being a part of that. So uh, I could see how that was. I think it. I think it. I think it was. But so, I, but it it meant, yeah. and I'll to try and be as brief as possible on this. It meant um, sort of wanting to prove to my family that you know that that I that I was doing something worthwhile rather than the thing that I loved doing, which was writing and literature, which I sort of put in a box and pushed away, I'm going to say, when I left school. Um, Finding a way back to that has been the work of 30 years. Well, Good and Prosper was first established in in, uh, Germany, right, in the late 90s. No, Good and Prosper itself was a relatively new invention that was something that I created when we moved to Ireland okay. in 2015. I wasn't quite sure what to do with it to start with. I had uh, had other business interests in Germany um, um, through sort of leftovers from, from my restructuring work and investments in that field. Um, and Good and Prosper was a, was a sort of new venture or a new business that I set up as a with the idea of doing something completely mm. different and hoping that I could use use it to write in some form or another. I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do that, but it was at the time when people, I was starting to notice that people were, were writing blogs and creating content and building very substantial businesses with very little capital around that and and using intellectual their intellectual capital as the driving force behind right. the business and i found that hugely appealing yeah. and i thought this would be a good time to try that out so that was what good and prosper was there for and good and prosper the name came simply from from my conviction um that you don't have to hang your ethics you don't have to check them in in the cloakroom if you want to be successful and prosperous yeah. in business. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. But it was something that it was a a mindset that I'd encountered in Germany a lot, um, but also in in the Anglo-Saxon world. That somehow, if you wanted to be successful in business, you had to be right. cutthroat brutal. and yeah. Yeah. and and yeah. brutal. And and my experience was it, it was, this was exactly the opposite. That if you wanted to be long, t- that, that investing in business was more like gardening, and that you had to have a concept and constantly tend right. to the soil and the biosphere yeah. by looking after right. it, if you wanted to be truly successful and truly successful in a garden is having something that flourishes and that you can harvest every year right. without diminishing it. Well, it sounds like it was a real convergence of your love of literature as well, right? And your understanding of the arts and kind of bringing those two together. Well, it didn't come until, and didn't actually start until 2020. Yeah, okay. So I had to wait five yeah, years. Yeah. And it was um, it was the pandemic that gave me the push because we were sitting at home end of March, twiddling our thumbs <laughs> on 
what was a beautiful spring in Ireland. And I had this realization that if you don't start now, you will never start. Um, And so I started writing a newsletter with, I don't know, 20 people on a list. I had no idea where that list had come from. People who set up my little website had linked me to MailChimp, so I just used that. And I did that for, I've started that in March 2020, and I've been publishing every Friday for the last two and three quarter years. I think it'll be three years this March. I've got a substantial subscriber set. That's how Grant came across me. Um, And and the writing led to interviews with people who were interested in hearing my take on stuff that I've been writing about at the intersection of finance, business, history, literature, and leadership. Um, Just reflecting on stuff and telling stories. And it took me a while to find my voice, but I think I've found one now that I'm comfortable with. And that's led to all sorts of other writing projects and teaching projects. And so, you know, that's, that's, so I've come full circle and reconciled 30 years of investing in business experience. I love it. With what I should have been doing probably 35 years ago. And the birthing of giants fellowship program has been part of that. That's how we met. And, uh, is that how you connected with them? Was it through your writing and your blogging? Um, no, that came through another pet project of mine, which is um, financial literacy. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've that I've noticed right from the beginning, when I was dealing with private companies mainly, the le- the owners and sort of German Mittelstand companies were not what I would call financially literate. Right. They didn't use their accounts to 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 adv- to advise and draw insights on their business. They were had very rudimentary ideas of of what the balance sheet and PL were there for and often couldn't read them at all. Which as the poet Olson wrote in his in his wonderful piece, I Maximus has has, has made for difficulties. And that made for difficulties and I it was something that I wanted to cure. And I found that I was really good at explaining the concepts of business finance to people who didn't have a clue and weren't terribly interested, but mm-hmm. knew they ought to know something about it. Right. And right. that led me to create a number of memes, so simple mental models for getting them to understand you know, how all these things fitted together without using any accounting language. Hmm. And because I've been an advocate for financial literacy in in, in business and entrepreneurship, um, that has brought me in touch with a number of different people, one of whom was Lewis Schiff, who right. was founder of the Birthing of Giants organization, yeah. who liked my my idea of creating a benchmark for business owners just to measure their progress in a very simple way. And and that's what enticed him. Um, and he found that I was personable enough to be put in front of his audience. So um, you know, that we established a very productive friendship and one that I'm, I'm delighted. It's an organization I'm delighted to be involved with because it brought us together. Exactly. Share with us one of those memes that uh, you think has been one of the more powerful ones. Well, uh, one of the things that I've, that I, 
suggested that business owners do, I think I started doing this about 15 years ago, was telling them to create their own stock price, huh. even if they were a private company. And the stock price is a very simple thing you can get, everybody can calculate. It's just the your net, it's your assets minus your liabilities divided by your share capital, right. which is effectively nothing other than your book value per share. But with a little wrinkle that I ask business owners to look at all the capital that they've ever put into the business, um, particularly savings that they may have drawn down while they were setting up the business so they can get a real handle on how much does it actually cost me to set the business up Mm -hmm. in the early days, Mm -hmm. even though I may not have accounted for the real cost of putting the business in. So if you use that as your denominator and divide it and divide your net assets through that, you end up with a with a quota, a quotient. Of, it's going to be a small number, right? Um, hopefully, and that small number can then act as a stock price because you can measure it every month. Yeah. Every time your accounts come in, you can do that calculation, and you get a series of numbers that move up, down, or sideways. Right. And what I found yeah. was if an, if somebody can stick to it for three months, that entrepreneurs, because they know what a stock price is, and because stock prices need to go up because otherwise they you know feel uncomfortable, right. they have this they have this metric line yeah. that they want to influence. Right. And what right. happens then Smart. is they start asking questions like, well, how do I get it to go up? <laughs> right, right. And it's really, I mean, it's a very it simple may, it, psychological it impacts trick. Their behavior. But, but, yeah, yeah. But, but once they once they ask that question, they start recognizing how things are connected. And they can start measuring the impact of things that they do in life, in their mm. business. Yeah. And seeing how that impacts basically net equity. Right. Right. Because net equity is the only is the only part of the balance sheet that moves whatever you do. Yeah. Wherever you're making changes, it will have an if unless it's just an a swap on the asset side or a swap on the liability side. Right. So if it if if it's if it crosses the line between assets and liabilities or if it impacts the P&L or cash flow, then it will also impact net equity, which is what moves the stock price, if you like. Right. And the rationale behind it is is to be found in a publication that used to be available to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders and used to be available on the Berkshire Hathaway website called the Owner's Manual. And I suspect for compliance reasons, it's no longer there. But it was a beautiful little document outlining Buffett and Munger's partnership principles and the basis of their investment and management philosophy. And there was a section at the back of it, section eight, which describes the concept of um, intrinsic value. And this is important because the very first page on the Berkshire Hathaway annual report for the best part of 57 years were three columns of numbers 
excluding the date. So there would be the year would be the first column, and then you would have the percentage change in Berkshire's book value, the percentage change in Berkshire's share price for that period, and the percentage change of the S&P 500 with dividends mm. reinvested. Mm. And Buffett explains why those three columns of numbers are so important. And my thinking, you know, 15, 20 years ago, is if the world's most the most, most um, successful investor and business investor thinks that that's important, well, <laughs> then it may be worthwhile <laughs> really understanding why he thinks it's important. Yeah, yeah. And in the owner's manual, he has this, one sentence which is at the core of that meme which says whilst book value per share is a not particularly useful kpi on its own we do know that the general direction of change of book value is indicative of the change in intrinsic value hmm. so my little stock price meme building on that wisdom says yeah. it may not be of very much value to you in running your business and indeed it isn't but if you concentrate on it on making sure it continues to grow, grow. Yeah. then the rate of change at which it is growing is the rate is will be indicative of the rate of change in intrinsic value and intrinsic value is what as a business owner you are aiming for because at some stage you're going to have to realize it one way or the other. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. Cool. Well, so by doing that little exercise every week, you are doing something that Buffett does, and doing stuff that Buffett does is not <laughs> good the behavior. stupidest thing you could do. That's <laughs> good behavior. Well, Stephen, we're almost out of time. This has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed understanding your, you know, career direction and, and, uh, you know, the uncertainty you, you met and uh, faced and, you know, took, took it, uh, took the bull by the horns, as we say, and, and rode that bull to, to another direction. And, um, you know, we always ask one last question to everyone and that's, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give someone that, you know, maybe, uh, had something similar happen to them where, you know, they may be expected to go into a family business or perhaps, uh, you know, decided to go into a career that <laughs> found out that they hated it and had to make a change. You know, what, what would you what would you tell that person in terms of, you know, kind of getting a, back to their own corner office someday? Well, um, depends whether a corner office is where they want to be. True. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I think I would do two things or three things depending on where they are in their career. If they were young, I would advise them strongly to find an outstanding mentor mm. as their first boss in whatever career they choose, yeah. whether it's carpentry or consultancy right find be picky about who you work for first really picky people think at the young at a young age that they can't be but 
that's the point at which you need to be at your pickiest because it can right. make an enormous difference. Yeah. The trajectory that you're on, firstly. Secondly, at whatever stage somebody came to me, I would urge them to make sure that their head is not overriding their heart mm. in terms of advising them what they should be doing with their lives. And I believe deeply we all have a, a purpose, something that we are particularly good at, a talent, a song inside us, and mm. it needs to be sung because the longer you postpone it, the greater the danger of your being absolutely miserable yeah losing that voice. at a later stage in life and there's a reason why the rate of suicide amongst men in the west is at its highest between the age of 50 and 55 mm. it's because the the thought that we may have wasted yeah. our real talents becomes so unbearable along with the drained energy that we can do something, the, the, the belief that we can do something about it dissipating, that gap between what we think we should have been doing and what we actually did and our belief in the ability to change can lead people to give up on life. Yeah. Yeah. And the third piece of advice, if they were in anywhere close to that situation, is to say it's rubbish and change it yeah. on a sixpence. Yeah, it's difficult in your head, but if you give your heart free rein, given all the experience you've got in life, you know you've, you've arrived at a place. Um, you know lots of stuff that you didn't know when you were twenty-five, where you can accelerate your change dramatically through applying the wisdom and the lessons that you've learned. Yeah. It's never wasted. Yeah, fabulous. Well. Sir Stephen Wilkinson, founder and managing director of Good and Prosper, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you so much, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.